The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. About that. Yeah, exactly. Um, click. And we're live. It is Monday, July 26, 2021, 5.01 p.m. And we have to start with a hearty welcome back to Christopher Argerus, uh, who is in the audience today. We have tried to bring him on screen. We have failed. We are going to keep trying. He is... Uh, uh, wants you all to know, as he has said in the chat, that he is A, alive, B, um, yes, has had a rough week, and is uh, C, back. Um, I will, uh, uh, at the risk, of, I don't want to uh, uh, tell his story for him. He will do that as soon as he can uh, get back on the screen which we are working on, um, but uh, I do want you all to know, because like dozens of you have written to Kate and me, uh, worried about Chris, and uh, he is uh, recovering. Uh, he is uh, uh, among the living, um, and he is uh, 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 with us today, uh, even if um, not... Um, uh, not yet visible, but we're going to do that if we can. We are not allowed to have fun anymore. Delta variant breakthrough infections are really not fun. So I would say, so get vaccinated, except that that does not follow because Chris did get vaccinated. He was fully vaccinated. Um, uh, but Rick Pildes has looked into the soul of America and he has seen the problem. And it is too much voting. <laughs> no, I'm joking. I'm, that's not where we're going with this. Um, uh, Rick, that you you wrote a uh, uh, a genuinely disruptive op-ed. Too many elections in the United States, and I have to congratulate the New York Times for the provocative headline. Um, are we voting too much? Is there too much voting going on? in this country of ours. Well, let me say that um, the New York Times put two different headlines on that piece. <laughs> I was going to say, this I'm is not, not sure the headline that I remember. Yeah. yeah. It was um, kind of A-B testing. Exactly. They, they, and, they and do that actually, with everything, though. They do. And the headline that tested better is, um, this is not normal for democracies. So that was, I guess, more provocative than um, we have two frequent elections. Um, I actually do think that as a general matter, but as you know, um, in the New York Times piece, uh, I was talking specifically about the two-year term for members of the U.S. House, which is completely an outlier among major democracies in terms of how frequently elections take place on a regular basis for the the parliament um, or the legislature. Um, since you wanted to frame things so provocatively, provocatively, I will say that we have more elections per capita than pretty much any country in the world. I think last I counted, it was something like over 500,000 offices, our elective offices, drainage commissioners. Um, we elect judges in many states. We elect uh, prosecutors in many states. Um, uh, various kinds of commissioners. Um, and I do think that's a separate problem. Um, we, we vote on many, many offices for which most people, including myself, when I have to vote for them, don't have enough information, aren't motivated um, to seek out the information uh, to make voting meaningful. But let's leave that aside and, and just focus on the two-year term for the House, because that's, uh, that's one of these issues. I like, you know, Kate's comment about, uh, the, or the disruptiveness. I don't know if that was Kate who used that word, but you know, one of the points in writing a piece like that is to get people 
to step back and look at things that they just take for granted as the normal state of things, because that's the way we've always done things, um, and to recognize how profound the consequences are for, for certain kinds of institutional choices um, that are now deep in the background and, and not sort of brought out into the foreground to really look at and reflect on and ask, is this actually the best way to design our democratic institutions? And what are all the consequences of choosing one form of design versus versus another? So I, I want to ask you about the House of Representatives proposition, because my first reaction when I read your op-ed was, wow, we would have been, I think the technical term is truly fucked in 19, in 2018, if we didn't have a relatively quick opportunity to push back against the Trump administration. And that there was really, at the end of the day, one thing that protected American democracy um, you know, people talk about the guardrails held and everything. What really held was that the population said, wait a minute. Uh, and that was expressed in a, in a two year after the president elect got, got elected, people electing 40 extra Democrats to the House of Representatives. And I know the flip side of that is well, wait a second. Two minute, two, you know, two years after uh, the people elect Joe Biden, they can also turn around and install Speaker McCarthy, which seems more likely than not. But I'm actually okay with that trade. It seems to me that the ability of the the ability of the population to respond relatively quickly in the American system, as opposed to the British system where, you know, you get, you elect Boris Johnson because, um, because Jeremy Corbyn is really unacceptable. And then you're kind of stuck with him for five years. Like, it, why shouldn't I respond to your op-ed by saying, you know, damn straight real-time checks. Um, you know, give us all on our smartphone the ability to have like votes of no confidence in the in the presidency. Do it by poll in real time. Why not? So whenever we're talking about institutional design choices for democratic institutions, um, it's important to recognize, as conversations often don't, that there are inevitably, you know, pluses and minuses, costs and benefits to different choices that can be made. And so um, you've articulated one of the serious concerns or costs of having four-year terms for the House. Um, now, let me just say two things. Um, first, um, you could have four-year terms for the House where the elections were scheduled on off, off year, uh, years during the midterm. That's what I was just saying. That would just completely obfuscate like that entire so concern, you, basically. Yes. So we, we want to separate out the question, uh, what, what length term for the House would make for best government? Um, and then when we want to hold those elections. Um, but I think it's very important to think about all the all the consequences, or I would say all the costs uh, of two-year elections in the House. Let's remember one of the things I, I found a lot of fun in researching that piece is that it forced me to go back and look at the history of how we ended up with the two-year term for the House. Um, and while I, I sort of knew this, I hadn't realized quite how powerful um, the culture was at the time for annual elections. So the view of democracy at the beginning in the United States was, um, unless you have annual elections, it's, it's not a real democracy. The, the line is, you know, where annual elections end, tyranny begins. And that's actually- From quoted, Federalist, Federalist 53. That's right, exactly. And that's, and, and at the time of the states, um, before the convention, um, two states had elections every six months. Um, the rest had them every year, except for South Carolina, which was the only state that had them for two years. Um, now, we could take your view, you know, why stop at two years? Why not have annual elections for the House? 
Um, Madison, actually, as I say in that essay, Madison pushed for three years. And the convention, in fact, initially approved a three-year plan and then compromised for the two-year plan. But in the modern United States, since the early 20th century, where we created primary elections to choose the candidates for the political parties, for Congress, for races, it's not just that we have elections, unlike other democracies, every two years. We have two elections every two years, or at least members of Congress have to worry uh, and adjust their conduct accordingly for the prospect that they face two elections every two years. Um, and, you know, here we are uh, shortly into a new administration. Um, and even several months ago, uh, the political world was being um, structured um, in part by uh, uh, issues about how to position the parties for the midterms, how should incumbents position themselves against potential primary challengers. Um, and, and as I say, this is not typical of how other democracies think we ought to structure the political process. Now, I grant you, um, other democracies have a different mechanism for trying to provide some kind of checking fun function on a government that might otherwise be in power for four or five years. The advantage of having a government in power for four years before voters kind of cast a judgment uh, on how well that government has performed is that that's enough time that voters can not only see what policies governments enact or fail to enact, it also gives voters a much better chance to actually experience the effects of policies and make a judgment about how they're working out. When we have primary elections, you know, 18, 20 months after a general election and voters are starting to decide they want to uh, punish the party in power. Um, and of course, we have the reality that midterm elections almost always cost the party in power seats. And that can't be a rational reflection of how governments have performed. Um, uh, it's also it's also very early to be able to make any realistic judgments about the effectiveness of a government for voters to go out in a year and a half after they've taken office, cast a vote, which is essentially a vote pro or con on the on the new administration. Um, so I, I think there are many, many costs to the two year ter term, particularly once in the 20th century, we added primary elections into the mix. Now, to step back to the bigger picture question that you're raising, whenever you're designing democratic institutions, um, the question in part is, do you design them for the worst case scenario? Do you design them for what you think the average case is going to be of how governments are going to perform? Um, if you are tremendously worried about the risk of a authoritarian or tyrannical or demagogic uh, government or presidency, um, you, can, you can strongly disempower the government from being able to act effectively. Um, and uh, elections in two years for part of the government is, is one way of providing some means of doing that. But you have to realize that there is cost on the other side, which is you're also making it much more difficult for government for a government to perform effectively. And we have big issues these days, as we know, in the United States and not just here with democracies in the West. Governments um, appear to be um, much less effective at being able to deliver uh, on the issues that um, large numbers of, of, of their members consider urgent. Um, and there's a real cost when democracies can't deliver effective government, um, including alienation from democracy itself. All right, so help me out here, because it seems to me that the comparison to other democracies is confounded a bit by well, among other things, the absence of a, of a no confidence measure, uh, means in the United States. So theoretically in the UK, and it is only theoretical because the Conservative Party will not vote no confidence in Boris Johnson, but very really in countries like Israel and Italy, um, the parliamentary system supports governmental collapse at any time. So you actually don't need that four-year term, theoretical four-year term is a maximum term. 
In the United States, the two-year term is a real term, absent criminal conduct or, you know, something that'll get you expelled from the house, which is a high bar. Um, uh, so how does that interact? Maybe, maybe the optimal answer is, you know, you have a uh, relatively long term, but a alternative means of the government falling apart, which, you know, the Canadians, man, like we, we is known to every democracy basically except us, right? There's some, there's some means by which the government, uh, other than the expiration of its terms, dissolves and you go to new elections. Is the, is the magic formula the combination? Because I would, I, you know, I didn't used to be terribly worried about, you know, the left would tell me, but when a tyrant has power, you don't, wouldn't want to have made that argument. And I would scoff and say, you know, come on, we have 200 years of uninterrupted democratic or quasi-democratic government in this country. We're, I'm not really worried about that. And I, and I repent all such statements, you know, that, that I have made in my youth, um, like a year and a half to five years ago. Um, you know, I, I, I do think, like, I would not want to go to the polls and elect Speaker McCarthy and then be not able to get rid of him uh, for four years. And I do have... Um, I do look at the last five years and I say the only thing about American democracy that has really, really worked well is majoritarianism. And my whole orientation toward counter-majoritarian institutions has been really disrupted by the fact that the more majoritarian an institution is, the better it functioned in the Trump era. Um, and so I look at it and I say, well, maybe the answer is this whole presidential system, what you're, you've actually bitten off a piece of the problem. And the real problem is presidential is separation of powers. And, you know, a lot of countries do just fine. Like, you know, Canada kept its Doug Ford in Ontario. They didn't, he didn't, go national. Um, and they have pretty sane politics at the national level. Maybe we just should give up on this whole independently <laughs> electing the president thing. Uh, well, you have moved quite a lot, it sounds like, in five years. Uh. <laughs> I mean, yes and no. The truth is, on in lieu of fun, I always, you know, reserve the right to experiment with. But I, I am much more respectful of majoritarianism than I used to be. Oh well, my God, I don't know where you're coming from with that, but like, yeah, I'm going to let a little, Rick answer. <laughs> I, was a little, I was a little surprised by that way of putting it because, you know, of course, one of the important institutions um, um, during the last four years that, that was an extremely strong bulwark against um, uh, uh, sloppy government, um, uh, you know, impulsive government, um, was the courts. Um, and of course, the courts aren't majoritarian. And the U.S. system isn't a majoritarian system, as you know, that it, because of the fact that, not only because the Senate is elected, you know, based on the states, but just the fact that um, we do have these staggered terms for the House, the Senate, the presidency. It's not like in a single majoritarian moment, a government goes into power and the majority, therefore, is, you know, so... I'm not sure about the term majoritarian here institutionally, um, but um, can I ask but, a clarifying question? Yeah, do sure. You mean like, do you just mean like electoral majority, like or, or elect like voting, like the the elect like the voting majority, like like do you mean like in the presidential election the way that Hillary like won the majority of votes like, in the country? And then it didn't like, and then like the electoral college didn't deliver her the election or like, well, I, don't I don't know. Want, that's what I don't understand. But I, I don't want to sidetrack this conversation okay, with sorry. my meditations on majority. No, no, no. I'm just, no, I kind of think it's fast. Like I, well, 
anyways, I think it's related. I think it's very related to what Rick is talking about. I just think that like, I'm just trying to understand like what you meant. I, I guess what, what I meant was that the more the, you know, the founders were obsessed with this, I, with this idea um, and the house and the regular elections of the house is an exception, but they were I, I really fixated on, on counter-majoritarian checks on the wills of temporary majorities. And the justification for this was that they were afraid of the rise of a demagogue who would play to public sentiment, would win you know, public acclamation, and then would become a dictator. Um, and my frustrated observation is that the more majoritarian and reflective of simple popular will an institution was over the last four years, the better it tended to perform against demagoguery. So the House did better than the Senate. Congress did, in my judgment, better than the courts. The Electoral College, which was there to, you know, to prevent the rise of a demagogue, no matter how the people chose to vote, ushered in the demagogue over the majority of the vote. Um, there was a direct, there was an inverse relationship, in my judgment, between institutional performance and uh, in the fight against demagoguery and um, and we can argue about whether the courts are the exception to that or whether they did as badly as I think they did. But what what I but but my point is I don't I, I my experience of that rightly or wrongly causes me to be very respectful of temporary majorities in their desire to check you know, to check non-majoritarian institutions um, uh, in the name of democratic will. Let me, let me, I mean, since we're operating now with this much broader perspective than two or four year terms for the House, let me, let me actually bring some comparative perspective to bear on this, um, to chasten you a bit, hopefully. So, you know, one of the things that we've discovered in the last seven, eight years, uh, decade maybe, um, is um, how much more vulnerable than we might have thought democratic systems are uh, to what some people call electoral authoritarianism or governments getting elected in legitimate elections uh, by majorities um, and then using their power to dismantle or significantly hamstring the various institutions, the press, independent institutions of other sorts, the courts uh, that stand in the way of their just ramming through their vision for the country. And uh, I think that's one of the reasons, not just because of recent experience in the United States, but looking around um, Europe, especially Poland, Hungary, but these trends are there in other countries as well, um, France, Germany. Um, that's one of the reasons more in general, we experience democracies, I think is more fragile or we are more worried about their fragility than we might have been 10 or 20 years ago. Um, and the comparative political scientists who look at this phenomenon of electoral authoritarianism and its increasing encroachment, um, on a, on a truly democratic system, um, uh, you know, conclude that the systems that uh, do not allow electoral majorities to so immediately transfer their will into control of other institutions, uh, like the US with bicameralism and with a good independent court system, are the ones that are most resistant to what we now see as one of the major threats to democracies, you know, not the threat of a military coup or democracy being overthrown in, in a moment like that, but majorities electing figures who then use that power to um, dismantle the institutions that provide some set of checks and balances on governments. So I, I wouldn't, I mean, look, this is a much bigger discussion um, 
than we're talking about, but um, I would hardly think this is the time in the history of democracies to be celebrating unbridled majoritarianism. No, I don't mean unbridled. I mean a little bit less bridled. I mean, I, I, I am still hung up on the, the issue that Trump lost, that the people never voted for Donald Trump. Not once, not the other time. Um, that the institution that was designed to protect the people from the rise of a demagogue midwifed the ascendance of the demagogue and considered it unacceptable to consider playing the role that it was actually structurally designed to play. And so I, I look, I agree with you that this does not necessarily have to do with the, um, whether you have a four-year term or a two-year term or a one-year term for the House, it does have to do with whether there is some immediate feedback mechanism that we have tended to associate with the, uh, the first off-year election. And so, you know, if you could say, okay, 435 members of the House and we're going to have 110 of them elected every year so that there's a House election every year, but it's only a quarter of the body so that the president gets some kind of a feedback mechanism, um, uh, I'd be more comfortable with it. But I'm, but I'm, I'm wary about the idea that the president goes four years without, without the public being able to say, but actually, Mr. President, you suck. So let me give you another perspective from the states, which we don't talk about that much in this. Are context. you about to say recall, please? Are you about to say recall? Well, I'm going to tell you a, a, a story in which recall is a little bit of an element, but not the, the whole story. So I don't know how many people know this, but um, the terms for governors um, early in our history were one year or two years. And two years actually remained the sort of median term for a governor, two, two and a half years. Uh, all the way up until shortly after World War II. Um, and then at that point, uh, almost all the states made the decision to move over to four-year governorships, except Vermont and New Hampshire. Those are the only two states now that don't have four-year terms for governors. Um, why? Because the view was governors, the, the states couldn't be governed effectively uh, with so many elections uh, for governor. Um, and state constitutions, of course, are much easier to amend than the federal constitution. Uh, and so they were amended by popular vote to these four-year terms. Um, and no one right now is pushing for governor's terms to go back to two years um, because of the, you know, the horrible specter. Now, obviously, a president has, is much more consequential than a governor, um, but states have survived bad governors. Um, Kate mentioned that this was a company, we do have a little bit of a vote of no confidence in the US system, if you think about it this way. Um, you know, a number of states did adopt the recall for governors and, and certain other state officers. Um, and, and in fact, when the move to four-year governorships was made, uh, a number of states, it was done in conjunction with creating a recall for exactly the reasons that we're talking about here. You know, the idea was, you know, longer terms are better in general for more effective government, but we do want a mechanism to check a, a really awful governor who might get elected. Um, now, the reality is, of course, recalls are very rarely used and very rarely effective, um, though they are sometimes. Um, obviously, California threw a governor out um, through a recall. Um, uh, and many states don't have a recall for a governor, even though they do have a four-year term. So I just think that history is interesting, you know, to put us put next to the history of the House. Again, in the early, there were a lot of things about the early conception of democracy that, you know, we later decided we, we wanted to revise. Um, it used to be the case that the way democracy was understood, um, you could not hold office unless you actually literally received a majority of the votes cast in an election. That was part of the understanding as well. If no one gets a majority, there's not a legitimate election. Um, and what did they do? Well, in many states, um, the, pol the, the Constitution required 
you hold the election again until somebody gets a majority. And in some places, this actually meant that for the two-year term of the U.S. House, for the member from that state in a particular district, the seat was never filled because they had election after election over two years and no one actually literally got a majority of the vote. And in other states, you're, you're muted, Ben, sorry. Sorry, this is basically what happened over the last four years in Israel. Yeah. You know, it's 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 different because of the parties, the way the party system is built that way, but it amounts to the same thing. But to, you yeah, but to actually, but, it makes, but to form a real government, you do need, I mean, it makes sense to form a real government, you do need a majority to, you know, we, what we later learned is that it's completely fine to say that the plurality vote winner wins the seat. Um, and that's not inconsistent with how we understand democracy. Just like with the governors, you know, we decided over time, four years is a, is a more appropriate term. Obviously, this issue with the House is, is just, you know, is not going to be the subject of that kind of debate because uh, it's so hard to amend the U.S. Constitution that, um, uh, you know, it's hard to get these kinds of debates going at all because people realize that the end game is kind of fruitless um, and there isn't going to be a significant change. Now, I've said in that piece and another work I've done, um, as a way of checking governments in between elections, um, I actually would like to see us give more power to the party, the minority party in Congress um, than it currently has. Um, and other systems do uh, provide these kinds of um, minority party rights. Um, you could imagine- so, so what does that look like? Well, um, there, in some places, there are uh, sort of audit committees that the party out of power uh, controls. Um, in some uh, systems, uh, the, the party out of power has the right to subpoena government officials or to conduct hearings. Um, uh, there are um, uh, days, <laughs> some systems have a day where the opposition party actually sets the legislative agenda for the day. Um, you know, you see in, in the British system, obviously, um, uh, when the prime minister goes to parliament um, and, uh, and has to answer oppositional questions directly, opposition party uh, questions. Um, there are ways you can empower. We know in our modern system where political party alliances determine so much of the behavior in Congress and its relationship to the White House, that if the same party controls the White House, and the House or the Senate, you're not likely to get a lot of checking oversight kind of function um, out of that institution. Um, and so uh, that's why I think um, uh, some greater rights for the party out of power uh, to, to, to get information, to investigate, to call witnesses, to hold hearings. You know, the minority obviously still can't legislate. Majority still has to control legislation. But that's another thing to think about in this in this context of how you strike the right balance between accountability and effective government. I mean, so I think it's we... easy. Yeah, it just. Sorry, go ahead. Sorry. No, I'm sorry. No, I, mean, I just want to drive this point home again. But, you know, it's easy. For, I think it's easy for people to see that if we had elections every year for the House, which was the the the, the view most people wanted when the Constitution was formed, um, uh, there'd be more accountability, but it's easy to see how much less effective that would make government. Right. And when we experience all this turmoil and uncertainty and primaries and midterms coming up and the government only has a year and a half before to get anything done because then the system shuts down in the run up to midterm elections, all of these things need to be seen and, and, and their origin in the two year term for the House, I think, needs to. Uh, be recognized. And so that's the question is how do you strike the right balance between those two effective government and accountability? Sorry, Kate. No, no, no. I think that that's exactly right. And that's what my question is kind of following up on. So and I've had for like kind of like the last 15 minutes, I just like have like been kind of waiting to get it the right timing. And so this is perfect. Um, so what it strikes me reading your article to like kind of narrow the focus, but also widen it in some way here. Um, it strikes me that like the that the that the argument that you're making with the house is very specifically one of kind of uh, like being able to make a more effective government, as you just said, being able to make a govern government that can like do its work and govern. Um, and I think that that is one argument 
for for like fewer elections, right? You just like give them more time. They don't have to be out campaigning. They're not as like kind of like thrown about by these like thrashing masses, um, all of this kind of stuff. The second part is that like there are the thrashing masses and that maybe there's almost like a Dan, Danny Kahneman type of like thinking fast and slow like type of argument around limiting people's ability to so quickly change their minds um, in electoral politics. And then maybe we want people to be more contemplative and have more actual work product from a, pol- from a, from a representative before they make a judgment, that they're not just making it based on like some gaffe that they make at a public speaking event because they haven't been able to get anything done because they've been campaigning for two years and then campaigning again. So like that's like a kind of a second point. But the third point that I don't hear you mention, which I find kind of compelling, is I wonder what this would do for corruption in politics and like the entrenchment of, of lobbying and the entrenchment of other certain types of like interests. I see uh, the House the House elections as being on years and off years, obviously. On years are like with the presidential term when more people show up, and off years are off, except when they're not, and you're challenged unexpectedly, and there has to be this huge bum rush to kind of bring out the vote and really, really campaign because there's some type of like national kind of consensus that like a funneling of money into these various races. Um, what happens? Like, what become the motivations just in terms, like, what pressures get alleviated besides the good ones? What, or besides the bad ones? Like, what bad pressures, what risks do we run having representatives only run every four years in terms of kind of entrenchment and corruption? Like, in terms of, like, both in terms of, like, money and, like, seeking money and, like, how they end up becoming kind of, you know, I don't know how you... Well, no, I, I, well, I think the biggest risk is the one Ben is concerned about, certainly, that, that if it was a four-year term and it was scheduled at the same time as the presidential election, you know, you'd still have a third of the Senate up in the midterms, but you would lose the ability to, to, meaning, to really, really hammer a, a, a truly horrific administration. Um, but otherwise, um, uh, you know, we could talk about whether it's possible to reform the campaign finance system in any meaningful way, but leaving that to the side, um, you know, more frequent elections, more demands to raise money. That means for primaries as well as general elections. That means more time spent on fundraising and less time devoted to other activities such as legislating or or learning uh, about issues. Um, And, you know, I was thinking in relationship to your comments also about the term limits movement. And what many, um, uh, I don't know if you want to call them, let's say academic experts on Congress said about um, term limits for members of Congress is, you know, what's going to happen if you term limit people is you're going to lose a lot of the capacity to develop expertise and knowledge that builds up over time. You're going to make them much more dependent than they already are on staff and on lobbyists. Um, Because if they're, you know, only there for a relatively short period of time and a two-year term is certainly a short period of time um it's difficult to build up the resources to resist what you're being told by the people who seem to know much more the lobbyists and also the the staff um, that's around long term so you know with four-year terms they'd have to they still have to raise money senators of course have to raise money but they they wouldn't have to spend um as much time obsessing about that um, as they do from the minute they walk in when they know they face the risk of a primary, um, you know, 18 months or so um, after they walk into the door. Um, so I, I see mostly no, benefits I, in those terms. I think that I see mostly benefits too. I just was kind of very curious if like you thought that like there would be some type of, that there would be some type of lack of like the lack of pressure might be you know, like really kind of a, like show either not a corruption but like you said like you know the trade-off of accountability with being able to be industrious in this like in this kind of in in congress like i see that i also see like all of the things that go bad with the senate and you're moving them closer towards like you know they're you're moving them closer towards those types of relationships and those types of entrenchments you know i was told 
um, this quote from a senator. I did try to track it down once and I never managed to find it. Um, I assume it's true, uh, but I don't know for sure. I think it was supposed to be Fritz Hollings. Uh, Hollings said that at one point. But anyway, the quote was, this is for a senator. In my first two years of a Senate term, I'm a statesman. In my second two years, I'm a diplomat. In my last two years, I'm a demagogue. <laughs> that's pretty awesome. Uh, can you hear that's, me? That's a pretty good line to, I, to sort okay, of Okay, let me just ask a question. About. Um, because my sound has completely gone. Um, oh, sorry. So well, the do floor Reagan is yours. independent elections have any impact in preventing demagogues from coming to power? and sort of facilitating a decline in democracy or are there is the regularity just a signaling mechanism um that sort of um indicates the health of the institutions in a country um you mean the fact that we have elections every two years is kind of a sign of uh, uh having a robust democracy because we know we're going to have these elections we have them all the time, regardless of any other circumstances, civil war, inter international war, depression, financial crisis. Is that is that I kind of the idea you're getting at? Since he can't hear, I think I'll, I'll translate okay. for yeah. him. Um, he, um, let me, I, I think he means, is the regularity of elections primarily a signaling mechanism a la the one you describe or does it have real accountability uh, uh, components as well? I mean, is is it primarily a a, a, a symbol a set of symbolic gestures that reflect a certain commitment, or is it primarily actually an accountability mechanism? Well, I think it's. I would say more the latter, but I but I'm not sure it's really a, a form of accountability. I don't know if that's the it, it, it is in some sense. But what I want to mention again here, we talked about it at the outset and, and people kind of know this, but I'm not sure how well it's front and center in their minds. We know that since 1934, um, in every midterm election, the president's party has lost seats in the House. Now, what kind of accountability does that reflect? I think what it reflects is that presidents govern, I mean, presidents campaign in ways that try to make themselves as broadly appealing to as, as large a slice of the electorate as possible, or at least the slice they think they need to get elected. That often means uh, uh, suggesting different things to different audiences, leaving things vague, avoiding hard decisions, and that as soon as you go into office, governance requires choices and choices inevitably alienate um, uh, some number of voters, including voters who might have supported you. I don't think it can be rational to conclude that essentially every presidential administration since 1934 um, has performed so badly in their first two years in office um, that um, they deserve the sanction or the punishment, if you will, electorally uh, of, of losing seats in the House. So it is, a, it is a form of accountability, I think. I mean, things happen. It's not just symbolic. Seats change hands. Um, and those changes can have significant consequences on the politics. Um, but I, I don't know it's the, whether it's the kind of accountability we're, we're really looking for, um, in democratic elections, if that's the if that's how it works, that it kind of it always has that effect, nearly always. What is the democratic accountability we're looking for in elections? Is it just is it just direct one to one in and out type of accountability? Like, well, I think that it's um, you know partly a retrospective judgment on how well people in power have used that power on behalf of the the voters. Um, uh, on behalf of the, 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 the citizens of the country, the people in the electorate. Um, and it's also a, um, uh, it, it, it's accountability for, for where things are, where, where we want things to go in the next coming years. It's partly retrospective. Uh, many political scientists think what voters are mostly doing actually is casting a retrospective judgment on how well those in power 
have used the power that we've given them. Um, but but you want you want it, you want you want it to be some judgment on how people have performed in office and and how how the direction they are likely to take political events. Um, and if it's um, so negative so consistently, um, you know, in the two year midterms after an election, you do have to wonder whether it's providing that, that kind of accountability. So that, that seems to me to be your best argument, that the fact that midterm elections always go the same direction um, implies that there's that they're not actually serving a judgment purpose, they're serving some other purpose. Um, and I, I guess my question in response is, um, what if we take the election and the midterm that follows it as a package, and you say the election will tend to overstate the enthusiasm for the candidate, and the midterm is the corrective to the overenthusiasm. So, you know, the people really liked Barack Obama, but they didn't like him that much, you know, filibuster proof majority level. Um, uh, and so it actually takes two elections to reflect a kind of instinct over time about what people want the balancing of, of power to be. And we just don't have a good way of doing it in a single election. Well, I don't know how, how we would test your assertion that uh, voters are always over enthusiastic and don't really want as much as the candidate they're voting for seems to be promising. So it's a good thing they can correct themselves, you know, two years later by saying, oops, uh, I endorsed you, but, but you know, not to that extent. And gee, what a nice, happy, happy optimum uh, we've reached now. Um, I mean, you'd have to, you'd have to tell me a pretty good story to, you know, really, really convince me of, uh, of that. I have no good story to tell you, but I will note that Kate has acquired some newborn kittens Ah. Uh, Paula, the floor well, is yours. I just don't want to be. I'm sorry, Rick. If I was looking over to hi, I was looking over to the other side of the screen. I'm on vacation in Montana, and the farm just got two baby kittens. Those are adorable. Kittens. Yes, they're very cute. They're so sorry, adorable. Wait, there are Wait, some more. more, more. Yeah, there's another out of the kitten over there. Yeah, they're just kind of all over. The, so uh, this is Maud, and she wanted me to. She wanted Hello, Maud. She wanted she can't hear you. But she wanted uh to play with the kit me to play with the kittens and I'm trying to tell her it'll be a little bit. So thank you. How come All I know is every time I come on, you guys are in some amazing outdoor location and I'm just I still in my you. same office. <laughs> I'm still in my same boring office location too. Paula, the floor is yours. Thank you. Um so my question is on your NYU faculty bio page, it says that you have criticized excessively romantic understandings of democracy. And I was wondering if you could explain that and maybe give a proper understanding of what the morality of democracy is or maybe the ideal system. Because I can say at least from my own experience, which isn't worth much as a, as a student starting her first year at law school, that I do think there is an argument to be made that a lot of people, whether in good faith or bad faith, think that the Constitution, at least when we talk about American politics, is this unchanging celestial document um, that has never been reformed, which is ahistorical. But I think the way that we think about our system of government does kind of romanticize this kind of godly defined document, which doesn't change at all and can possibly hamper even the best kind of reform. Well, I think part of what I mean by uh, overly romantic conceptions of democracy um, is that um, in the U.S. in particular, um, we have, uh, reformers at least, have tended to think um, that if uh, citizens are just given more opportunities for political participation, they're thirsting to take advantage of those opportunities. Everyone wants to be as engaged with politics as reformers tend to be. Uh, and so we make 
institutional design choices based on the premise uh, that we're gonna have all this participation and engagement. Um, and that turns out not to be the case uh, for a lot of reasons, including the fact that, that many people um, have good reasons not to be as engaged in politics. Um, you don't have to be obsessed with politics. Um, um, and also that um, it, 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 to look, take the example of voting, um, um, you have to actually have the motivation to seek out appropriate information to cast a vote in a meaningful way. People have that motivation for certain kinds of, of races, um, but they don't have it for all the races that we vote on, like who should be the drainage commissioner um, in a state that has uh, drainage is. commissions. The people who participate in those elections tend to be the ones with the most uh, of a vested interest in what happens with that political body. It's often the special interests who turn out for those elections because it's not the case that most citizens are going to be showing up all the time. Okay. So this is super interesting just because I was literally just talking on the farm about the drainage commissioner because like, no, I'm serious. No, I mean, like, and they like know everything about drainage commissioners. And like they were talking about how they want this whole reform for drainage commissions and how it like and having a full time drainage commission that stays in the valley and regulates the water changes all of their income for the year, all of their planning they can do on their farm, everything they can do. And it's fascinating. And I just think of it as that's a crazy little local election, but they care so much more about that than they care about like, you know, like I guess Montana just got another representative um, because they gained 100,000 people. But like there's just generally, um, but, but more than they care about like their tiny little slice of the house. And so I wonder what that balance is between state and local elections and how people care about them versus their, their representativeness in the federal system um, and how that trade-off kind of um, how that trade-off kind of works. Yeah, look, I agree with you that, that local government um, in many parts of the country is, is the most important level of government for a lot of people. And it can certainly be the case that certain sort of offices are particularly important in certain parts of the country. There's still a question of whether we get the most effective government um, in those positions um, by uh, voting for people rather than having people we have voted for yes. appoint people to those positions. Yes. One of the other ways to go back to the question that I was asked, you know, one of the other ways this, um, what I call the romantic conception of democracy um, that, that actually I think it is a distinctly American uh, conception of democracy. I, I, I think we emphasize popular engagement and participation much more so than most democracies do. Um, I think a lot of these institutions were actually we're, we're, that we're voting on that we're talking about, like elected judges and prosecutors, you know, come out of the Jacksonian era. Yes. Um, at, at the height of that kind of understanding of democracy. Yes. And then once offices are made elective, it's very hard to turn them into a point of offices over time because there's you know, too much of a sense that you're trying to take something away from the people. But as another example, you know, all the work I do in the election context. Um, we are unique among democracies in having partisan elected officials uh, do things like design election districts or oversee the administration of elections. And uh, part of the reason for that is it's been very hard to convince Americans that um, independent institutions uh, structured in certain ways, appointed in certain ways, uh, would do a better job of providing uh, fair and impartial administration, let's say, of election laws uh, or of designing election districts than people who are elected. And in the United States, um, there's far more resistance, uh, a far less willingness to create these independent kinds of institutions. And what you will frequently hear is, well, at least I can vote for these people, you know, who are drawing these districts. But the reality is, legislatures aren't really punished for how they draw election districts, no matter how much partisan gerrymandering they engage in. It's too, it's too it's second. So it's so indirect. It's so indirect. Yeah. Right. You need a lot of information to know the details and it's a very indirect 
issue and it's so low down on the list of things people are going to care about by the time you know they go to exercise their vote in the polling place um and but but this romantic idea that no we control these people so it's better for the system stands in the way of creating independent institutions that i think um there's good reason most other democracies you know have, have adopted these institutions for these kinds of functions Daniel, you are wildly out of your native habitat, um, but the floor is yours. Well, I am curious as to whether you think the Senate has produced better governance outcomes um, because of the longer terms that senators serve and how we can know that's due to the longer terms given the variety of other factors that might explain the better outcomes. Yeah, I mean, of course, neither chamber can produce an outcome alone, right? So the legislative process requires, you know, bicameralism. But um, uh, yes, I guess if, if if asked to express a judgment on this, I think um, for all its problems, and this is leaving aside the, you know, massively malapportioned nature of the Senate, uh, but just in terms of how, how it it functions versus the house. Yes, I think an institution with longer terms um, is, has been more deliberative, um, has been more kind of thoughtful. Uh, you know, this is not true at every moment in American history, of course, and great things have come through the house. But if I had to say in general, yes, I think the quality of legislation and the legislative process is, is greater in the Senate or has been at least historically than it is in the house. And I think the longer term contributes to that. Can I ask a follow-up con comparative question, which is that I'm curious, like, do people use the, like, internationally the bicameral model that, it, like, as we do, like, the popu popular versus, like, I don't know, like, the, the kind of the elite, like, the, I mean, obviously there is the House of Lords and there is, like, the House of Commons, but, like, as democracy, as you, as the New York Times dubbed your op-ed like the normal way of democracy like is there a movement away from like kind of that model like what is the abnormal part of how we do it um well the the abnormal part is having a part of the legislature uh the 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 the, the body that represents the people uh the the lower house um elected um on such short terms and having midterm elections and having them have to raise their own money on top of it. So the norm is that the government's elected, it's gonna serve four or five years. Many of these systems don't have a fixed election cycle. The government at some point, which is understood to be not more than four or five years, uh, uh, calls a new election. Um, and, uh, and I'm not aware of any system that has shortened those terms out of the view that, gee, that's, that's turned out to be too long. That's a mistake. Do, do any lengthen the, yeah. the Senate part? Well, uh, most fade the Senate, the upper house into non-existence. If it, if it, if it exists at all. I Mo see. So it's not just like, it's not like, and how do you feel about that, Rick? Like, I'm okay. About a movement, so sorry. About you look a movement like you're being away. Overwhelmed by kittens at the moment. I am a little bit, but like you're, how you don't mention this is the like the birds. There's there's a movie to be made here, an update. Of I the know bird. it's there's like there's something. So there's like um, oh god. Anyway, the what I was gonna ask was just before we to follow up. Like, do you is as part of, is that. Is that part of what you're proposing, which is basically this idea that like there would be a house that is four years and things fade into just a four year, one four year body, a one body elected four years and maybe like rotating years? Or do you suggest that like, is it really you're limiting your suggestion to four year terms for the house and then like six year terms for the Senate? Yeah, I wasn't thinking um, at all about the Senate in this context. Um, you know, if you wanted to make the U.S. more like a parliamentary system, you could have the Senate elected for four years, the House elected for four years. They would all be elected on the same cycle as the president. Um, you know, there are arguments for that, that a government is more likely to go into office and have an actual mandate 
Um, but I wasn't um, proposing anything about the Senate. Um, you know, of course, the big issue with the Senate, as we all know, is, is you know, how huge the disparities have become over time between the largest state and the smallest state in terms of the number of voters. Um, but, um, uh, but, but, but I'm not, yes, I'm not, at least in this vein, in this, under this hat that I'm talking about right now, I was leaving the Senate to the side for other uh, discussion, I guess. I would get wholly behind this, this proposal if uh, there were uh, a companion proposal that the House can dissolve itself on a vote of no confidence and go to new elections at any time, or that the Speaker, maybe and that the Speaker can dissolve the House so that you have a mechanism for a mechanism for by which the um you know the the term can be as short as public confidence uh, may retains yeah. or or up to four years and what I like about a mechanism like that and what I like about the no confidence mechanism in um, many other democracies is that, uh, the midterm election is an incredibly crude way of, of trying to make a judgment about um, is this administration pe performing so horribly that it should be thrown out before it gets a full the, the full term that it was elected to serve. Um, these mechanisms that are reserved for more exceptional contexts um, and they can be triggered in exceptional contexts seem to me a much better device than a midterm election because you know we do want in my view all things being equal we would want governments to be able to serve for four years or five years um that's a, a reasonable amount of time for governments to develop policy to enact policy and for voters to experience the effects of that policy we don't want every two years for the government to be significantly cut off at the knees which is what happens with midterm elections, unless they retain such a, you know, a huge majority in the House. But if you want to you know, set, have a, have a fail-safe mechanism or a safety valve for truly horrible administrations, then a mechanism like that that can be brought out under these unusual circumstances is much better tailored to that problem um, than the system um, that, um, that, that we have. Um, which was, of course, was created, you know, with certain assumptions at the time it was created and in many ways has performed, you know, very, very well. Um, but it's always important to, you know, re-ask some of these foundational questions, especially and as it, circumstances change. And there was one additional assumption which you haven't mentioned that they made at that time that is really no longer true, which is that the legislature was a part-time endeavor. And, you know, it would meet for a period of time and then people would go home for many, many months at a time. And well, some people still own Shooter's Bar and Grill, Ben. Sorry. Well, thank God for that. <laughs> no, but I mean, like if you're electing somebody for, you know, to go to Washington a couple times a year uh, for a three month session or something, it's a bit of a different thing than if you're electing a national government, which is really what we're doing now. Um, we are going to leave it there. Rick Pildes, you're a great American. It's good to see your face. Uh, we, good to see the kittens. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, I'm is, really sorry. I like did not mean to be in any way disrespectful. I'm kind of just like not totally in control of my environment at the moment. <laughs> we will be back tomorrow at a special time, Genevieve Delaferra has persuaded the estimable uh, Eric uh, Feigelding uh, to come on and talk about COVID variants. Uh, but it's going to be at three o'clock Eastern time, not five o'clock. So if you show up at five o'clock, no one's going to be here. Um, uh, maybe by tomorrow we will have figured out how to get uh, Christopher Argyris on screen so that he can tell you all about uh, uh, what has happened to him over the last couple of weeks. Until then, 
And by then, I mean 22 hours and 55 minutes. No, sorry, 20 hours and 55 minutes from now. Kate? We don't have fun anymore, but we still do have two ter- two-year terms for the house and sleeping kittens on our shoulders. This thing. But I just noticed you guys do polls and two thirds of your listeners think we should have the four year term. That's correct. Oh, I I should also add, by the way, Rick, that I completely agree with you. And I like have thought this for a long time, but you you obviously made the argument much more intellectually than my intuitive opinion um, about this. But it was really fun to talk about it. So who are we going to get to introduce the constitutional amendment? Yeah, I, I think every member of the House would be behind the amendment. <laughs> yeah, it would, it would, yeah, it's like it and would go to the, the states pretty fast. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think so. And every yeah. state legislator would vote against it because they, they want they want the they want the, house they seats. want to yeah they want those house seats. That's exactly right. It's a real it's a real conflict of interest there. Uh, interesting. Well, you have to yeah. send it to ratifying conventions in the state. That's true. That's true. We will see you all tomorrow. Thanks, Rick. Take care.